Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Dispatches. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Uh, we are doing something a little different today. Instead of one lengthy interview with one person, we have a series of shorter discussions. So here's the setup. Uh, the UN Foundation, which supports uh, the UN Dispatch blog, every year invites uh, talk radio hosts from around the country to broadcast for the day from inside the UN, and they help make UN experts uh, available to these talk radio hosts for interviews. And they are hosts from uh, across the political spectrum, which certainly makes things interesting. But uh, nestled among those talk radio hosts was me with my computer and laptop set up for this podcast. So what you are about to hear is a bunch of interviews. I think I did about a dozen in all, uh, give or take a few. Now, there are a few interviews I did that I did not include in this podcast, but are available on the blog. These were a bit more timely, and I talked about sort of issues of the moment. And for example, I talked to the UK ambassador to the UN, who's currently the president of the Security Council, uh, about uh, the precarious position of the UN peacekeeping mission in the Golan Heights. Uh, I also spoke with members and representatives of the World Food Program and UNICEF, about the new uh, appeal, humanitarian appeal, for Syria. Those didn't make the cut because they were very specific and timely to the moment of the day, whereas the interviews you are about to hear are timeless and can be uh, heard at any time and appreciated at any time for what they are. Now, I couldn't fit every interview into this podcast, so what you are going to hear, what you are about to experience, is volume one of what will be a two-volume live from the UN set. Here we go. Have a listen. Enjoy. So I am now here with Paul Heslop from the United Nations Mine Action Service. Unmass. Welcome. Good morning. So you are you're the real life hurt locker. Um, in a sense, yes. That's that's what we do. I can't say I'm the real life hurt locker, but I've cleared a few mines and bombs in my life. So what do you do? You have a military background? Yeah. Originally, I was in the military. Where? From what country? Oh, sorry, I'm from. Uh, I thought from the accent you got it. I was in the British. I was in the British military. Okay. Um, and so let's talk about mines. Uh, where? What? So, so you are part of the UN that actively does demining and. In post-conflict zones, absolutely. I, I work for the UN Mine Action Service, which um, is a service within the UN that supports the rest of the UN entities, all the all the trust funds, the the programs, the agencies, and, and Department of Peacekeeping, um, with regard to mitigating and managing explosive risk. So whether it comes from mines, unexploded bombs, IEDs, shells, rockets, grenades, mortars that haven't gone off, ammunition stores that are in correctly um, managed, we're responsible to mitigate that risk normally by clearing and destroying explosive Where items. are, now actually here, I, I will test my knowledge, I have heard, or it's my understanding that Laos is the most mined country in the world, is that still correct? But, uh, 
Laos is one of the most affected countries in the world from explosive hazard. Okay. It's not mines, it's cluster munitions. Cluster so munitions. these are, they're, they're locally they're called bombies. Okay. Um, so you, you have a, a bomb that is dropped from, from an aircraft, um, either a B-52 or, a, a, or a, you know, an F-18 in today's terminology. They'll probably skyhawks then. Um, and it contains about 500 bomblets that are about the size of a baseball. Mm-hmm. And... 100 feet above the ground, the casing breaks up and these bomb- bomblets are thrown over the area, mm. similar size to a football pitch. And um, they hit the ground and they're meant to explode. Unfortunately, about 10 to 20% of them fail to explode. Mm-hmm. So if there were 600 to start with, that means there's somewhere between 60 and 120 unexploded bomblets looking like tennis balls or baseballs scattered over an area the size of a couple of football pitches. And so uh, Unmask comes in and, w- and what do you do? Do you, do you uh, have people on the ground trying to find, locate, detonate, demine these? That's exactly what we do. Uh, around the world, we have about 18,000 people, yeah. uh, mainly from the countries that are affected, working to exactly that, locate, destroy, locate, identify, and then destroy these items to make it safe for the and so, and so just talk us through how that works in, uh, the, in these unexploded bomblets that you're talking about. So what happens? Uh, Someone in that big, you know, the Hurt Locker style uh, no, outfit comes in and actually not because it, because it, uh, that the, that type of equipment, uh, the Hurt Locker style bomb suit, is very much about dealing with uh, booby traps, IEDs, um, and certain devices. When you when you're doing this every day, what you've got to do is find a mix between a mixture of, in terms of comfort and protection. Mm-hmm. So they do wear a bomb suit, but it's a much much lighter bomb suit. If you remember the pictures of, of Princess Diana walking through the minefields, yeah. she was wearing like an apron yeah. with a visor. That's yeah. what D-miners were, because all these, these countries are hot, so if you can imagine wearing a 30-40 pound bomb suit for eight hours a day, you're just going to keel over from dehydration. How dangerous is it? Dangerous is it for the D-miners? I mean, are there loss of limbs and deaths frequently in, uh, in that line of work? Unfortunately, there are accidents. It is a dangerous line of work, but it, it it's very similar, probably in terms of come to working in the construction industry or working in you know mining, as in extraction of coal or, or copper. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is dangerous, but the guys uh, they're, they're well trained, they're well equipped, they're very disciplined, and they work to very clear rules and um, yeah. in reality accidents are very rare we we normally have more people injured each year driving to and from the minefield in road traffic accidents than we do from actually explosive incidents mm-hmm. and so when uh, they come across a field of these unexploded uh, bomblets these are like decades old bomblets probably um, yeah well obviously the, yeah. in Laos they're all from yeah. the Vietnam War so they've, right. been, they've been on the ground now for, for over 40 years plus. Um, Are they still hot and live? I mean, can they still explode? Unfortunately, some of them can. I mean, these um, devices were were built to fairly high tolerances. Um, They're sealed. Um, Obviously, there is some deterioration, um, but unfortunately, that deterioration itself can lead to them becoming more sensitive and more dangerous. Um, And in the case of a bombie, the arming mechanism is as it spins through the air. So if you happen to pick it up and that movement is the final spin, yeah. you just armed it and made it dangerous. Uh, and so do you have to explode it in the field? So is that how, how it works? That's exactly how it works. So the the miners follow a, a methodical process to identify where items are, usually working in lanes, um, which are clearly marked with tape and flags. And when they find a, a, an item, they'll put a marker next to it, and then normally a, a slightly more highly qualified individual will come and, and place a charge next to it and just blow it up. Mm-hmm. 
so where where else, what are other sort of big countries that you work in? The, the largest program we've got in the world at the moment is Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, we have nearly 15,000 people working in Afghanistan, uh, clearing mines in UXO. But there are big programs in Angola, Cambodia, well, I mean, uh, Mozambique, Sudan, South Sudan, the DRC. About, I mean, anywhere there's been war. Um, you know, are you know you're 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 demining in a sort of active conflict zone? Um, are people still putting laying mines there, or are you, these are mostly, I would assume, from the Soviet era? Most of the mines. You're absolutely right. The, the, I'm not saying there are no new mines being laid in Afghanistan, um, but in reality, the, the weapon of choice today in Afghanistan is the IED. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mines themselves we're dealing with uh, are primarily either legacy minefields from from the Russian occupation in in in, yeah. in the 80s. Or there are still a lot of mines from the uh, the, the Mujahideen era um, and the Najibullah government in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot, of, so a lot of the mines we're clearing in Afghanistan are legacy mines and have been in the ground now for 20, 30, 40 years. But um, there are still, you know, there are there are new explosive devices coming into circulation. But on that side, with the exception of IEDs, we're winning the battle. We're certainly clearing a lot more mines in Afghanistan than they're being laid, and around the world we're clearing tens of thousands of mines or hundreds of thousands of mines each year, making the world a much safer place. So, you know, on this question of IEDs, it seems that um, mines are almost like an antiquated weapon of war. They're not, I mean, they are still used today, but not obviously to the degree that they have been used in the past, whereas IEDs are sort of a preferred a preferred way of delivering a bomb. Um, does your does unmask deal at all with IEDs? We, we, or, we, we do. I can imagine, like, in the future, this would become a greater proportion of your work as more and more mines become cleared? Absolutely. I mean, UNMAS, the, the title Mine Action Service is becoming slightly dated in that a lot of what we do is not just about mines, it's to do with all explosive hazards. So all of those unexploded bombshells, rockets, grenades that haven't gone off, and now IEDs. What what we do stress very much is we're, we're a neutral organization, we're part of the United Nations, and we're not there to be actively involved in what is a combat situation. So if, if an IED is what we call live, so it's been deployed and, and is still aimed at a target, yeah. um, we, we would not deal that and that would be handed over to, to ISAF or Afghan forces. <laughs> but if the fighting has moved on and this is a village in the hills and um, you know the people know that there is an IED there and they can't get to their fields or, or, or go down the road because of that, then then we would look at using deploying a team to, to go and clear that, that item. And, and in a sense, IEDs are a bit like mines. You know, when they become a victim-operated weapon, Mm-hmm. then, you know, that's exactly what a mine is, a victim-operated weapon. Mm-hmm. So when it's no longer live, you know, in the same way, if there was an active battle going on and there was a minefield in the middle of it, we wouldn't go and clear that minefield. So it's the same with IEDs. Uh, great. Well, thank you so much. This is interesting. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, so I am here with Zainab Hala Bangura, the special representative of the Secretary General on sexual violence and conflict. And this is a relatively new position, correct? Yes, it's about three years old. And how, have, re, have you been uh, the, the representative the entire time? No, my predecessor was here for two years. Mm-hmm. I came in in September. And where are you from? I'm from Sierra Leone, West Africa. So tell me about your job. What? Uh, how do you approach this this pretty massive, massive problem? 
Well, I think um, the important issue is that since the office was created about three years ago, my predecessor had um, established the foundation for the office, which was very good. And we have very good Security Council resolution. That's right. The global legal framework has been created by the, 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 the Security Council during the process of which they had created the concepts, the infrastructure, and the elements of compliance. My job is basically to be able to make sure, since it has been recognized as a peace and security issue by the Security Council that requires a peacekeeping, justice, and service response, is to be able to lead and to coordinate the UN and global effort mm -hmm. to be able to make sure they work within the framework which the Security Council has laid down, and then to be the international advocates. So let's let's explain. Let's let's give some examples. I think you were in Somalia recently. Is that right? Yes. yes so you were and and you were in Somalia, uh, a new country, an old country, but a country with a, a new government taking shape. Uh, what what are you doing on the ground? How are you working to end sexual violence? The the, the first place we have been able, first thing we have been able to do with Somalia is to be able to have the political will. We have signed a joint communique and agreement with the government, making the commitment to be able to work on this issue. Because from our reports within the last couple of two or three reports that we, the Secretary General has presented to the Security Council, it has become very clear that sexual violence is happening. So we needed to have a commitment, political commitment from the government. We have had that. The second stage is we are sending a team of experts who will go there in September to sit down with the government to be able to make sure the political commitments is actually they have an implementation plan for it. Once they do that... So these experts are people who are maybe trained in human rights Yeah, uh, both human rights. They are lawyers, yes. Okay. It's a team of experts called team of experts on sexual violence and the rule of law. Mm -hmm. So most of them are prosecutors, judges... Yeah lawyers. So that's the team they put together. So they are going to now look at the political agreements we have signed. How can they implement it? And once they put an implementation plan, which includes to make sure during the security sector reform, we actually screen to be able to train the police, to make sure they investigate, to be able to train the judiciary so that they can prosecute, so all people are accountable to ensure the government takes the necessary steps. Of course, in the process of this, they will work with the government to prepare a law because rape has to be a crime in the country. Internationally is a war crime. Mm -hmm. But at the country level we have to make sure the legal framework is there. So it's this group that will work towards that. And there's so many countries where rape is not illegal, right? Yes. For example, in Cote d'Ivoire it's a crime against the mortar. Mm -hmm. and the moral, not against the person. <laughs> right. It's yeah, so, exactly. so it's a, yeah, so if you commit it's a moral that, crime, yes. not a criminally exactly. prosecutable crime. So it means you have to change the law. When we went to Colombia, we had to integrate the law into the Constitution. So there had to be an amendment in the Constitution to recognize it as a law. And then sometimes you have to change the penal codes. It depends what's the structure yeah. of the legal system is in the country. But that's very important for us as a beginning. So, that's why these people are mostly lawyers. How did you come? Are you a lawyer? How did you come into this line of work? Well, well, um, I come from a background of women's rights um, activists because, you know, there was uh, over nearly 12 years of civil conflict in Sierra Leone, and I, I ran the biggest NGO in Sierra Leone, okay. documenting atrocities. I documented the atrocities that took place in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. You're documenting atrocities during yes. the Civil War. That's during a, the Civil that's War. That's a dangerous uh, act. Well, somebody has to do it. And as a result of my work, I was asked to work with the special court to write the report because when the special 
special court for Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. When the yeah. special court in Sierra Leone was set up, most of the victims who were coming kept talking about forced marriage, bushwife. And the judges, most of them were Europeans. This thing is like, we've never had this thing. So the special court, the prosecutor, had to come to me and ask me to do the report. And when I did the report, it was accepted by the court. I had to testify as an expert with this. So I have the so, experience and background. So you were, you know, essentially sort of collecting evidence on behalf of the victims. The victims. Well, was the your evidence used in the Charles Taylor uh, prosecution? Oh, yes, definitely. Because it was used at the special courts. And so, I mean, how did you get into that line of work to start with? I mean, Sierra, living in Sierra Leone, growing up in Sierra Leone, what propelled you to It started to, by, the, you know, I, I come from a very traditional background in Sierra Leone. The area of the country where I come from, women's rights don't exist. I lost my mother. I was an only child. My mother was very instrumental because my father abandoned us because I was a girl. He didn't want me to go to school. So my mother was the one who insisted. As a result of that, my father left us. So I grew up as my mother's daughter. When my mother died, even though my father had left us, when my mother died, the family, the custom, refused to allow me. How old were you? Oh, I was in my 30s. They refused 30s. To, yes, they refused to allow me to actually take charge of my mother. They said, my father has to come because she is my father's wife. So you're 30 years old. Yes. You're trying to, and you have brothers and sisters? No, I was, I'm so an only. you're trying to take care of your family affairs and the laws and the, the, the customs. customary laws says I cannot. So my father had to come. How did you village. find your father? You know where well, he was? I knew where he was. Okay. You know, so I had to find him and he came. He was responsible. He took control of my mother's funeral. And that propelled me to become a women's rights activist because I thought after the way he treated us and abandoned us, how come this is the man who is going to decide the fate of my mother? So when I went back to the city, because this was in the village, when I went yeah. back to the city, that's when I became a women's rights. So my background started as a women's rights activist mm -hmm. and then went into democracy. And this, but this was before the Civil War. So what this was, was just a year or so before the civil I was working in insurance. Insurance? Okay. Yes. I was on insurance. Do you have like a legal background, a lawyer? No. no just a civil activism? Yes. And then the war broke out and you decided that, you know, it, it, I guess, how did you first come to recognize that sexual violence was a sort of a key for component of the of the civil war? Well, because we started hearing it, people were coming because we were coming to the hospital, we were talking to colleagues and everybody. And of course, we come from the villages. Mm -hmm. And so the story started coming out. And then people like the Amnesty International, the Human Rights Watch, started coming into the country. So when the international angels started arriving, we then realized that we have to do something because these are sisters, mm -hmm. these are mothers. So that's how we got involved. And we got my, I got my first funding from the United States okay. government, the USA, and then later I was funded greatly by the British. And so how did you go about documenting these cases? We actually, we brought in a couple of lawyers. One of them is now working with the Open Society Initiative, mm -hmm. who came to support us. Yeah. And we had a lot of support from the Amnesty International, from the Human Rights. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of training, recruited, recruited young graduates from the university. But did you collect stories? Or yeah, did we did. You? We okay. did. We deployed people in all the, the region of the country, yeah. all over the country. Mm -hmm. We had offices, including behind rebel lines. We well, had did I mean did rebels at the time recognize that you were doing this? Oh, yes, I would imagine yes. you probably I came under on, threat. No, I was on the death list. You know, at my house was destroyed. This is a very at, political. Yes, at doing. one time I lost my house during the course of the war. I had mm -hmm. to run. They targeted you. Yes, I no, they didn't. They, by the time they came, I had left. I had to run. 
Like literally so, run. Oh yes, I went into exile. I went into exile in Guinea for ten months. Actually, on a fishing boat. As a result of that work, I was actually given an award in, in the United States Congress and then several awards in Nigeria. And the Human Rights Force now also mm-hmm. recognized my work, which is now in the, in, the, in the U.S. They also gave me an award here because of the work I did in Sierra Leone. Because my reports went all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of in that time between uh, your work documenting the Sierra Leone crimes and your work at the United Nations now, what were you what were you doing? Well, after I, I started working as a human rights activist, after a while I, I, I took a job to the UN mm-hmm. in Liberia because the war had just ended and there's the mission and they wanted somebody with the background and experience. So I went there for two years. I worked as the head of the civil affair, which is basically the structure that is responsible for the restoration of state authority. And I also had peace and reconciliation mm-hmm. work with I was working with civil society. I worked there for two years after that we had a change of government in my country. I was invited. I came in to be Minister of Foreign Affairs okay. for three years, then was Minister of Health for two years. While I was Minister of Health, then I was given this opportunity this to come and serve in the UN. And, and so what is your uh, what are your next moves uh, at the UN? What, what are what are you focusing on now? I'm focusing are there spe- on specific conflicts or regions? Oh yeah, we have eight countries which are priority countries, mm-hmm. Bosnia, Colombia and six in Africa DRC, CAR, mm-hmm. Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, Sudan, yeah. and Darfur. Mm-hmm. You know, South Sudan and yeah, Darfur. Yeah. And then at the same time, we're also looking at Somalia, yeah. Mali, Syria, mm-hmm. Libya. So those are countries. So, uh, so, so we're looking at that, just maybe to wrap up, to, um, we're uh, running out of time, but we have a Mali mission, a Mali peacekeeping mission that is about to deploy. Uh, are they asking you for advice on how to, uh, you know, on how to manage sort of the, the sort of sexual... Oh, yes, we are very much involved in the setting up of the mission. We are deploying a women protection advisor. Mm-hmm. But before that, we had sent a team together with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and the... The, the SRG on children affected by armed conflict. Yeah. We had sent a tripartite team that went to Somalia, sorry, in yeah. Mali, and documented. Yeah. So our report was used as in, in preparing the resolution. Mm-hmm. So as part of that is why if you look at the Mali resolution, there's a strong word yeah. in there on sexual violence. And we are in the first wave of deployments where actually we have somebody there. And I guess that's sort of the... the sort of the institutional value to have a position like yours that was created by the Security Council is to make sure that these issues are addressed specifically and not sort of in an ad hoc way but are sort of central to peacekeeping and and other and political missions missions. great well thank you so much for your time this was really interesting thank you I'm here with George Pepeyanis from UNESCO. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I have, here. I have an agenda to push with you. Okay. Um, I think it is obscene that the United States Congress refuses to fund your organization over uh, your organization's members deciding to admit Palestine as an observer member. And now you receive zero U.S. funding, correct? That's correct. How has that affected your programs? Well, I mean, it, it had a devastating effect on our, our programs, uh, and and it continues to uh, to have an effect on the organization's ability to deliver. I mean, obviously, we are we are doing our best. The uh, the director general has uh, been trying to raise funds, you know, through uh, other means, uh, but. Um, 
there is no question that when you lose 22% of your budget uh, in one day, that that can have um, that can have an impact, and it's not a um, it's not it's not taken lightly. But there, there, there's also the the the. Um, there's also the issue that that we have to con- that we have to uh, consider here, which is uh, it's more than just the money. Right. It's about it's about the voice of the United States being heard on a platform that is so unique, uh, which is UNESCO, where 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 the fight is over the power of your ideas. It's something that that in the United States Americans value as a tradition. Mm-hmm. We, we we like to mix it up. Right. And, and, and so what's happened is that since late 2011, 18 months ago, when the law uh, kicked in uh, following the vote of the General Conference, as you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, the volume at which the United States is being heard has been turned down notch by notch by notch now, because of the lack of our commitment to the organization financially. So, so – at some point, though, does the U.S. not lose its vote at the whatever the, the governing body of at the, the general conference? And that's and that's kind of the the bright light uh, that you see at the end of the track right now. You know, when that locomotive. When, is, when will that happen? That'll happen uh, this November. So there's no, unless and and I think it, it's for for American political uh, watchers. I think it should be known that the Obama administration very much wants to participate in UNESCO, but it's Congress that has. Uh, not rescinded laws from the 1990s that prohibit American funding for any UN agency that admits Palestine as a member, which is kind of like a holdover from an era, the pre-sort of uh, PLO, the, the pre-Clinton uh, peace effort era too. It's, it's it's sort of an antiquated piece of legislation that's having these uh, this this kind of effect. I wanted to ask you though, in specific concrete terms, how has this lack of funding affected programs on the ground? I'll give you. I'll give you a specific example that I think um, that I think the uh, the listeners to this program would uh, would be really concerned about. I spent two years in Baghdad for UNESCO from 2009 to 2011. So just before the uh, vote of the General Conference, I returned back to headquarters. But also just before leaving Baghdad, I had uh, put together a uh, a program at the request of the U.S. State Department that was to work on the judicial transparency of the Iraqi judiciary. And what we were very smart in doing, which is a typical UNESCO thing, was that we brought parties together. So we had we had the judiciary of, of Iraq, the supreme judge of the uh, justice of the judiciary, participating with us on how to shape a program that would help that judiciary be more accountable to the people of Iraq, make more information available, and also make Iraqis understand what the role of this judiciary would be in a new Iraq. It was a $1 million grant that we signed a a contract for on the uh, 25th of September. At the end of October, the check had not cleared, but the vote had happened at, at the general conference. That $1 million never came to UNESCO in order to carry out this program, and that program was, was cut. We couldn't do it. It was, it was based specifically on meeting this need that was identified by the U.S. government with a pro- that presented a problem to UNESCO, and we had a solution that the U.S. State Department said, that's the solution we want to follow through with. That's going to work for us. That's going to bring change. Now, 
I went to I went to Iraq because I wanted to do something for the Iraqi people, and UNESCO gave me an opportunity to to also, in a way, fulfill an obligation that I think that we have as well as Americans. When we said that we were going to that this war that we were engaged in was going to be a war in which we were going to to, to help bring. Mm-hmm. democratic institutions, a new democracy to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything more well, important than a judiciary in terms of building the, well, the I types of uh, this, I think, speaks to, I mean, speaks to the ways in which UNESCO, though not directly, tangentially advances American interests around the world. I mean, another way is literacy programs you run. Specifically, you can talk about literacy programs for uh, Afghan army, which which is uh, a UNESCO we had, program. We had a program for the, it was the Afghan police force, and I think uh, we have actually worked with about 3,000 mm-hmm. Afghan police officers. That, that program in particular is another program that has, that has uh, come, you know, come mm-hmm. on, you know, under under um, under uh, duress as a result of uh, of this another program. Speaking of literacy and education, we had a program that brought thirty thousand uh, elementary school uh, boys and girls to school in Afghanistan, um, and half of those were were girls. Fifteen thousand girls going to school and staying in school. That program was scrapped. It was funded through the regular program budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see how we are creating stability around the world when we are essentially cutting off programs that actually create that level of stability that we need in order to engage in the future. You and teach it, a child today, that's going to be your minister in 25 or 30 years. And then there are some programs that are just more sort of directly, apparently, uh, yeah, uh, sort of a relevant to sort of, you know, very concrete U.S. interests, like the tsunami early warning system in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. That's a UNESCO program. That's a program that we actually manage, and uh, we conduct all the testing for that program. Um, We just did tests. We did tests earlier this year. We did tests last year. Uh, We did a test for the Atlantic and the Mediterranean more recently. Um, These are important tests because what they do is they relate to the homeland security interests of this country. Right. And now we give less money to the organization that... We give no money. give, Give no money to the organization that runs the tsunami early warning system in the Caribbean because Palestine is a member. And and another sort of program, this sort of, I think, shows the height, really the heights of, of the ludicrousness of this is, of course, UNESCO does a lot of Holocaust education. This is sort of a, you know, central to the education portion of your remit. And again, that's... I'll, t- I'll tell you an anecdote. Uh, the Director General of UNESCO, Rina Bokova, was, uh, was, in, was in Kinshasa for a meeting. And um, at this conference that she was attending, this gentleman raised his hand and he asked her directly, he says, I hear that you're going to be cutting the, uh, the program for, for Holocaust education. And, um, and he said, you can't do that. He says, you, you have to understand that we use, we use the, the material that's generated out of that program because, sadly, this is an issue that we confront here in Africa. And the only way that we're going to stop this from repeating itself, from history repeating itself, is if we can get lessons learned now. In addition to that, we are currently running a very important analysis of how the Holocaust is taught around the world. We're doing a textbook review, and we're working with the Georg Eckert Foundation, 
Foundation, which is in Germany. Uh, they are the, the leaders in Holocaust education and Holocaust education analysis. And what we hope is that at the end of that study, we're going to have some baseline information as to where and how the Holocaust is being taught so that we can then further sharpen the programs that actually teach genocide through the lessons of the Holocaust. So what are your uh, prospects for this legislation being lifted? I mean, it would take an act of Congress to well, reverse it, this, but it, it, sort of, it seems like it's getting caught up in the you know, po Israel politics and, and Arab-Israeli politics and the U.S. government. It is, and we're, and we're trying to separate it out from that because it really has no bearing. Nothing happened after the vote in terms of Israel-Palestine. In fact, to be perfectly honest, since that time, we've had some very important things that have happened that I think show that this organization is balanced in its approaches and, and, and stands on the side of right. You know, we, we were able to put aside a number of resolutions that were, that were not constructive, that were in our executive board, that some people would describe as being anti-Israel. We set those aside at the executive board, and uh, this year we did the same, but more so, we brought Israel and Palestine together to talk about how do we address the issues that are being raised in these resolutions. We need to do an, a, 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 an assessment of, of, the, uh, of, of the issues that are being raised, and we were going to have a group, uh, a small group of, of UNESCO experts go into Jerusalem to do the research that's necessary and come out with some findings. Uh, unfortunately, that mission has been put on hold because there has been some disagreement between Israel and Palestine. We're still working to see if we can if we can get them together. But that's what UNESCO does. We bring the parties together to find common ground and move forward. So we're holding to that. What are the chances? It's a struggle, I have to tell you. I mean, we are caught up in this whether we like it or not. We do try to separate it out by explaining to people in all works of life, or all walks of life, from you know, from community groups to a opinion leaders and policymakers, what are the issues that are at stake here? And at some level, people are surprised to even learn that UNESCO also means jobs to people here in the United States. Right now, the city of San Antonio is preparing its application for World Heritage Inscription of the San Antonio Missions, which include the Alamo. They did an economic impact study down in San Antonio to look at what would be the impact of being inscribed on the list of world heritage. Probably for like tourism and, and yeah, it's, like it, it's how does yeah. how does this how does this affect the local economy? The, the local economy is affected in a dramatic way. In fact, if if totally maximized in terms of its marketing by the, the city of San Antonio and the state of Texas. The communities could realize over $100 million in overall impact, of overall economic impact, perhaps as high as $500 million. 1,000, more than 1,000 new jobs created, more than $2 million in new tax revenue. And that's all about and around the inscription of the five, of the four missions and the Alamo down in San Antonio. This is hard fact that, that, that shows that UNESCO is truly a global organization of which all, all member states benefit from. We also do a lot of work on coastal erosion. We work on sea level rise. We're doing things on climate change. These are critical issues that are important to Americans. We're sitting at the UN in New York. 
this building was flooded after Sandy. Mm-hmm. And what did I hear Mayor Christie and, and uh, sorry, Governor Christie and Mayor Bloomberg uh, talk about? They were talking about sea level rise mm-hmm. as a, one of the critical issues. Now, it seems to me that sort of UNESCO is almost like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to this issue of uh, linking American funding to UN agencies to whether or not Palestine is a member of that agency in some way. Um, that, you know, very well tomorrow, if they wanted to, uh, the Palestinian Authority could apply for membership to, say, the International Atomic Energy Agency. And immediately thereafter, if they were uh, approved, the U.S. would have to remove their funding from weapons inspectors in North Korea and Iran. Uh, I feel like my sense is that when that point happens is when this law will change. But unfortunately, you know, it's hard for, I think, legislatures to make that sort of bank shot uh, that you made about sort of the various ways in which UNESCO advances American interests in ways that, you know, are not as, say, apparent as weapons inspectors in North Korea. Well, when I talk about these issues, I really don't deal in the what-ifs. You know, I can't, I can't figure out, you know, or know what the Palestinian Authority is going to do in the coming weeks. What they've told Secretary Kerry is that they're not planning to go to any yeah. UN agency right now or to any of the treaties and conventions for which they have already gathered applications and prepared them for submission until at such time they feel that the peace process is not is not right. moving forward. So they're making they're going to make a unilateral decision as to what they're going to do. What I can deal in is I think what are the real issues and I think when it, when when Americans understand why this organization matters to them and why they matter to the organization, then we start to change the dialogue and the narrative. And it's a process. Nothing happens overnight, but we have a process. The law that you referred to is not a policy. It was a measure that was designed 23 years ago to deal with a perceived problem with Yasser Arafat, long gone from, from, from the PLO. This was another time, another era. And as far as I understand from my studies, a policy is something that you design in order to advance your objectives, in order to create opportunities for your agenda to be fulfilled, for you to share your values and to operate on those values in order to to create a better understanding of who you are on the global stage. That's what a policy is. I don't think that the law itself is a policy. It is. It was a reaction. It has outlived its usefulness, I'm sorry to say. I believe in the rule of law, and that means is that what the president needs here is what we is what is waiver authority. Mm-hmm. The law will remain, but the president should have waiver authority, and I think that's the yeah. balance that should exist mm-hmm. between the legislative branch and the executive branch when it comes to foreign policy. It's typical in these kind of issues that the president does have waiver authority, but this is just an atypical piece of legislation. You know, I, I have yet to find the person who wrote that uh, those lines uh, 20, 23 yeah. years ago, and a number I of hope people. You do. <laughs> well, I would certainly ask them. To, I'd ask them what they were thinking, but not to be facetious, but yeah. to understand because that also has a bearing. If we understood the context, then we would understand whether or not that context applies today. On the basis of what it says, which is very simple, it's just a couple of lines. It's about. You go, you know, the Palestinians go to a to a UN agency. That agency loses its U.S. funding. It's pretty straightforward and simple. Waiver language is customary in yeah. a lot of of the uh, of the foreign policy authorization. You look at it. In fact, if you look at the at the at the at the law at the overall bill that contains this language, 
You see waiver for the president, waiver for the president, waiver for the president. I think this was something that was probably hastily put together. I don't think that the that the that the waiver was a. Um, I think it was an omission. I don't think it was a commission on the part of anyone to say we're not going to do it. And so. Uh, this is where we stand. Um, but I think if we argue these points on the merits, I think people get a better understanding. They understand that from culture to, uh, to science to education, from homeland security to national security to jobs, UNESCO plays a role globally. And the last time I checked, the United States of America sat on the same planet as all the other countries, and it reaps the benefits of UNESCO, and it also contributes to what, what makes UNESCO great. Great. Thank you. So now I'm here with Jos Vandelier, Chief of Immunization uh, from UNICEF. Correct. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so let's talk immunizations. Um, what, uh, what programs do you oversee? So I oversee the immunization program in UNICEF, which for UNICEF is one of the, the core um, programs that we do. It is, it is part, of course, of the health interventions that we implement at country level. And I oversee um, uh, the routine immunization part of it, but also um, measles, for example, is part of the portfolio that I'm overseeing. Let's talk measles. Um, it is one of those uh, vaccine-preventable child illnesses Correct. that is on the decline around the world rather dramatically over the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, although it is kind of coming up in the developed world because of false and inaccurate information about the connections between vaccines and autism. Um, is, is, is fighting that um, incorrect perception part of your portfolio? Well, of course it is because, um, as you mentioned, um, we have seen a, a stark decline in, in mortality for measles, uh, mainly in the developed world, uh, in the developing world. Um, where we've seen a reduction of about 70, 71% in the last 10 years, which is enormous. Uh, measles... So 71% decline in mortality over the last 10 years. Correct. Probably translates into hundreds of thousands of That's correct. Uh, children's lives. Saved. Yes, yes. From over half, a, half a, uh, a million kids dying every year, now to just over 150,000. And what does the measles vaccine... Uh, sort of how, how does that program work? How do you... Uh, is it a drop? Is it a shot? Uh, mm -hmm. Does it need to? Does it require cold chain storage from its inception? Yeah, so so it's a vaccine, obviously that requires cold chain from the moment it's produced, mm -hmm. all the way down to the moment it's administered to the child. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an injectable vaccine, um, and um, it is given uh, usually uh, in developing countries at around nine months of age, mm -hmm. so to to infants. Um, but then uh, part of the, the big success in the last decade is that many countries have started to introduce a second dose, either in a campaign-style approach mm -hmm. or when the child is like uh, 18 months old. Mm -hmm. So that has resulted in these huge um, declines in mortality. Um, and um, it, it, is, it is a huge contributor also to the overall mortality reduction, uh, child mortality reduction that, that uh, we've seen as part of, of the MDGs, MDG4. Now, people don't talk much about measles eradication uh, like they do say of polio eradication is that even like possible uh, sort of maybe uh, 
uh, sort of biologically, or uh, is there is it something that that UNICEF is even considering? Well, biologically, it is possible. It is possible. It's a disease that can be eradicated. As you know, uh, smallpox got eradicated in the 70s. With polio, we're very close to eradication. We had just over 200 cases last year worldwide. Measles, biologically, is possible to eradicate it. But the way um, this works is that at a global level, um, countries come together in the World Health Assembly and make, make decisions that are important at a global level. And so that decision of make, going for a global measles eradication, that decision hasn't been made yet. Having said that, um, at a regional level, countries have come together and in, in regions they have decided, let's, let's try to get rid, uh, rid of measles in our region at the pace that is feasible for the region. What regions have come to that conclusion? So, so uh, the Americas have come to that conclusion a while ago. Um, the European region, the African region also uh, aims at eliminating uh, uh, measles by 2020. Um, the, the East Asia also. So, so basically, um, all regions have, have decided that, but on their own terms and on their own timelines. Okay. Um, and I want to talk to you about polio, which is uh, in the news again with a... I think outbreak is probably the improper term, but there are new incidents of measles in the Horn of Africa. Polio, you mean? Polio, pardon me, polio, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, how concerned are you about this outbreak? I mean, you know, this is a region that was previously polio-free, uh, and what's being done to, to, to contain uh, the outbreak? Is outbreak even the right term to use? I, I think you can, you can okay. say it's an outbreak. We have had several cases now after having a period of, of no cases at all. Uh, last year, polio um, was, was uh, mainly in the, in the three endemic countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria. And, and as you said, we haven't had cases in, in the Horn of Africa. The, the cases that we're seeing now in Somalia um, are indeed um, um, an, an outbreak. I think uh, we, we can call it that way. What the program is doing is setting up now immunization campaigns to contain this. Uh, so that, that uh, we can bring it back under control, that we get rid of the virus yet again, and so that it doesn't spread any further. Uh, and what are uh, neglected tropical diseases? Those are sort of neglected. Are those vaccine preventable? Are some of those vaccine preventable? And are those under your remit? Um, what's called neglected tropical diseases not really uh, under, fall under the umbrella of, of uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. This thank you. Thank Thanks. you very much. I am sitting now with Khalid Malik of the UN Development Program. Welcome. Great pleasure to be here. So you are one of the conveners, one of the authors of the flagship human development report. Uh, well, first, you know, I don't think many people outside UN circles know exactly what the human development report is. But for those of us inside UN circles, it's a rather remarkable and important uh, sort of, I think, stock taking of social progress uh, on um, you know, uh, social progress in countries. I think, uh, I mean, maybe a fair way to describe it might be that, you know, typically uh, when we measure sort of countries, we measure their wealth, but this looks at some social indicators to measure sort of uh, countries' progress. Uh, what does the newest uh, HDR tell us about the world? Well, let me start with the human development itself. Sure. Uh, I, I direct the Office of the Human Development Report. 
And uh, what we try to do is to produce annually a report on human development and take stock of how there's human progress, not so social but also economic progress. And 20 plus years ago, a very remarkable Pakistani, and just I happen to be a Pakistani just by coincidence, Mahbubul okay. uh, Haq uh, tried to advance a very simple idea that development is about people fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So if you look after people, the economy and society take care of itself. So that's a very simple idea, profound idea, and also deduce in 1990, the first year's report, that uh, the way to measure progress of that kind is looking at what we call a human development index, mm -hmm. as opposed to GDP alone. And the human development index has three dimensions to it. It is income, but also health and education. And it fundamentally rests on choices of available to people. The higher the index, the greater the choices. And so you use indicators like literacy rates, availability of certain healthcare uh, provisions, things like that, as a sort of measure of, of right. progress. So they are, these are, of course, always imperfect measures. So that this year's report is uh, on the rise of the South. And, you know, you've heard a lot about uh, uh, the change of Brazil, India, uh, China. Uh, but what this report tries to argue and present evidence on is that there are at least 40 plus countries in the world which are doing much better in human development terms. Uh, and this process has accelerated the last decade. And whereas the Industrial Revolution might be seen as a hundred million person story, this uh, story which we are documenting in this report is a couple of billion people story. So tell us, what, uh, name some names. What countries are you referring to? That are referring to countries like uh, Turkey, to Indonesia, to uh, Mauritius, to uh, Ghana, to Argentina, Chile, a whole range of countries. And then and these countries are showing rapid progress, is what you're saying, on, this, on the social indicators. They're showing rapid progress on the human development indicators, human development which includes indicators. the income as yeah. well. And this is, and particularly the last decade, maybe 12 years or so, things have accelerated. Plus, it also documents the rise in the middle class in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the numbers right now, about 1.8 billion mm -hmm. people in the world are considered middle class by standard definitions, most of them in North America and in Europe. By 2030, mm -hmm. we go up to 4.9 billion mm -hmm. middle class will be more than half of the world's population, and most of them in Asia. So you, what you're watching is a tremendous shift in history, a tremendous changing dynamics of the world. Mm -hmm. And since we are in it, we may not fully understand it. The report tries to document all of this, tries to understand why why some well, countries are doing better than why, others. Why, is it? Why, why, for example, is Ghana uh, a country that you that you pick out, and why is Indonesia to speak of a, a larger country? Well, we looked at 18 countries in particular in great detail and tried to say, okay, of course we understand that uh, context and geography play a big role, but there must be something common what these guys have done in terms of their own development experiences, and we highlight three drivers of development in particular. One is having a committed, capable state. It's very important. And this debate about markets versus state is not really a debate. You need both fundamentally. It tries to document how when a ruling elite feels that development is part of his own legitimacy, mm -hmm. then things work better than if that's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, the second driver is really open markets, uh, global markets in particular. Mm -hmm. But there the there's a conditional uh, comment on it. I think uh, globalization is an enormous uh, instrument for change. But we saw that, and we looked at the evidence that 
countries benefit when they do two things particularly. One is to invest in people, the second invest in infrastructure. So once you do that, then you benefit from the markets. And third one is social policy innovation. Uh, Brazil, for instance, is an interesting example that uh, it has not grown that fast in the last few years, but society has done much better because of the uh, Bolsa Familia program, which is transfers uh, resources to a lower end of the population scale. And that has transformed and brought a lot more people into the middle class, into markets. Mm -hmm. And so what, um, I guess, for, for countries that are not yet at that level, uh, countries that are maybe neighbors of Ghana, but don't have Ghana's sort of uh, same trajectory as Ghana, what, is, uh, I guess, what can be done to improve uh, sort of the, the human, their, their human development index? Well, I mean, that's what the uh, report, uh, the report does a couple of things. One is look at uh, what has worked in development, mm -hmm. then tries to see what are the challenges of the future, mm -hmm. uh, and then tries to see what are the implications of governance as a whole. Mm -hmm. So on, uh, what, on the first part, what it tries to say is that, look, many of these countries have worked in different ways. In the end, a country's progress is determined by its national leaders, national mm -hmm. institutions, but there's a huge opportunity for learning from each other, because yeah. these things are happening in so many diverse circumstances mm -hmm. that actually you can pick up certain elements which are value to you. But it also raises a prospect of future challenges in terms of uh, voice accountability, in terms of uh, environment and so on and so forth. And there the, the case being made is that this needs to be much greater policy ambition. Mm -hmm. And there's done some interesting projections for the future till 2050 to show that if you are much more uh, robust and energetic in the kind of policy combinations, there's a prospect of either reducing or almost eliminating poverty, or if you don't take care of those issues, poverty numbers are going to go dramatically up. Mm -hmm. So the choice is, choice is the, state, the country's choice, which uh, direction they want to go. So, so talking about uh, poverty, when you look at the global numbers of poverty, the uh, Millennium Development Goal for Poverty Reduction was reached, I think, in you know, a few years ago. Uh, but it was reached largely because uh, when you look at the aggregate numbers, India and China, China are China, pulling, yeah. and, and pulling everyone out, which is a nice segue to your new book, why China has grown so fast so long. Uh, so why has China grown so fast so long? Well, I should tell you, start by a little story as to why I wrote the book. And I wrote the book because uh, when I went to uh, China in 2003, I had read about China and talked to people who were experts in China. But when you got to China, you realized something else was happening. Uh, if you look at... Uh, once the way Financial Times covered China in the last 20 years, there's always this view that next year the bubble is going to burst. Yeah. The numbers lie, they're, they're not based on real data, and that uh, something is not quite right. But yet, uh, this country has grown over the last 30 years at 9 to 10% growth rates every year. And the question is, they did it in their own way, they did it themselves. They did not follow prescriptions others were telling them to follow. So it is really a study in transformation, mm -hmm. and that the, uh, the book tries to document why that has happened. And I'll just give you one small instance. Yeah. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, a great leader uh, for China, they said was a short man who could see very far, mm -hmm. and his vision of China has kept China together for about 50 years, actually. 
uh, even after his death. And he made a very interesting comment by saying that you cross the stream by feeling the stones. So ever since he made that comment, the China has never introduced a macro policy all in one go. Done a lot of pilots. So sort of slow rollout. Well, it's pilots. Yeah, pilot uh, demonstrate, see what works, what does not work. And I think that allowed it to not to make large mistakes. And therefore, when something clicked after three or four years of experimentation, then they were rolled out on a broader scale. Is that still the case with the current leadership? Are they still uh, have that kind of philosophy on development? Well, I think each leadership, when it comes to, has a different set of challenges. The current leadership has a challenge of how to make certain that inequality doesn't go through the roof, how to ensure that uh, people's voices are fully heard, uh, how to uh, bring a, a much larger economy together in a positive way. Uh, when you are a relative small economy growing at 10%, that's okay, but when you're a very large economy and still growing 7-8%, that's a very big, different kind of story. So I think the level of sophistication needed and the, and the challenge is quite large in China right now. So the new leadership, which is very well uh, educated and have great experiences, has a real challenge on their hands. Uh, I guess, is there a concern, um, you know, for, from a UN perspective, you often hear in UN circles that, you know, if China were to develop or continues to develop at the rate it's developing, but doesn't diversify its energy sources, that we are in for just a disaster as, as a planet. Uh, is there, do you get a sense, uh, studying what you do about the China and Chinese economy, that there is an intention or that there is experimenting on sort of using more renewable energy sources? Yeah. I think, first of all, uh, whether you have carbon emissions in Shanghai or in Detroit, right. as far as the Earth is concerned, the same value. Right. Right? The reality is that uh, as these new countries are developing, and they're developing fast because there are large numbers of people in India and China, of course their footprint is rapidly growing on the Earth as well. But uh, very few countries in the world including the advanced developed countries, are sustainable right now in terms of the footprint they have on the world, the per capita footprint. So if these development projections continue, uh, we will need three planet Earth, but you only have one. So how do you solve this puzzle? And as far as China is concerned, I think China has actually set up rather strong targets on new and renewable energy sources. They have set up targets of like 40% of their carbon productivity should come from, uh, they want to reduce by 40% the per unit carbon productivity or improve it by 40%, I should say. Uh, and uh, new renewable energy sources, they want to push by 20, uh, 20 uh, a huge target of uh, 15, 16 percent of the total energy mix. Just to give you an idea, in the states right now, the, uh, as a percentage of the total energy mix, uh, renewable energy is only like one or two percent. So it's a big thing to do. Regardless of all of this, much more is needed in India, in China, but also the U.S. and Europe and others, because uh, no country alone can fix the climate change issue. Great. Well, thank you so much. Great pleasure. So that's a wrap for now. The first tranche, the first volume of Live from the UN. Uh, there are about six or seven other interviews that I uh, did not include in this week's volume that will be included in a future volume. So stay tuned for that. For now, thank you for listening, and I will see you again next week. Thank you.